This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects. And you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick, and greetings to all of you listening far and wide across the time zones. New York, New York, Burlington, Vermont, Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Marietta, Georgia, Stillwater, Minnesota, Aurora, Colorado, Burbank, California, Montreal, Canada, Vienna, Austria, Lamasson, Spain, Perth, Australia, and last but not least, Abingdon, England, the home of MG Cars. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you're hearing, please take a moment to click that 5-star rating and leave me a review. Gotta feed that algorithm. Every rating and review helps me reach more gearheads like you. And as always, if you have questions, comments, show ideas, you just want to say hello, you can reach me at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com. So here's a question for you. Have you ever built your dream car collection, at least in your own imagination? What cars would you pick for your stable of dream machines? Well, we're going to play a little game today. In this episode, I'm going to pick six of my dream cars. I'll give you a little backstory on each car, why I think it's significant or what I like about it, and I'm going to give you a price I would expect to pay based on the most recently published sales or valuations I could find. I'm going to put down a few ground rules and then I'll tell you what's on my list. Rule number one, each car has to be from a different category. So for example, today my categories are going to be the following. Pre-war car, hot rod, off-roader, roadster, sports car, and muscle car. Rule number two, a price cap per car of $250,000. That's a lot of money, but it still shuts out a bunch of amazing cars. But let me ask you this. Is a million-dollar car more fun than a $250,000 car? I'm not so sure. How often do you think you would drive a million-dollar car the way it deserves to be driven? And the third and final rule, no modern cars. So, for the purpose of this exercise, let's say no cars built after 1970. Okay, so to recap, six cars from six different categories, a $250,000 spending limit on each car, and no car after 1970. All right, so while you think about what you would pick, I'll go ahead and tell you about my dream car collection for today. Let's get started. Number one, pre-war. A 1931 Packard Model 840 Deluxe 8 Dual Cowl Sport Phaeton. Here are some specs. There were 97 of these cars built in 1931. They had a 385 cubic inch straight eight 
L-head engine rated for 120 horsepower, and a four-speed full synchro mesh gearbox. The dual cowl meant that there's a bulkhead separating the front and rear seating, and the front and rear passengers each had their own windscreen. This car also had an adjustable hydraulic damping system that was adjustable from the driver's seat so you could dial in your ride. The cliche of these cars in popular culture is Elliot Ness and his G-Men standing on the running boards with their Tommy guns at the ready, but these cars are much more than Hollywood imagery. The Packard name is one of the greatest in American automotive history. Founded in 1899 in Warren, Ohio, the company soon attracted wealthy investors, and by 1903 they had the most modern auto manufacturing plant in the world, a 3.5 million square foot factory in Detroit, Michigan. Their slogan, Ask the Man Who Owns One, neatly conveyed Packard's high standards of engineering, build quality, and luxury. Packard became synonymous with luxury and prestige, and the 1931 Deluxe 8 Dual Cal Sport Phaeton was emblematic of the enormous wealth creation of the Roaring Twenties and the Jazz Age. These cars are considered full classics by the Classic Car Club of America. On their website, the CCCA defines a full classic as a fine or distinctive automobile, American or foreign built, produced only between 1915 and 1948. Many factors come into play, but generally a classic was a high-priced, top-end vehicle when new and was built in limited quantities. No mass-produced, assembly line vehicles are considered for classic status. The Phaeton body style has a great look. It's an open car with no roll-up windows, and when the top is up, it's a little bit wider than the body to give some shelter from the rain. You could also get side curtains for these cars to drive in less than ideal conditions, although they kind of ruin the lines. Phaetons were fair weather cars for the wealthy to use on weekend getaways. Think Palm Beach in the 1930s. This Packard would be eligible for just about any vintage driving event or Concorde Elegance. Now in excellent condition, it would cost me about $225,000. Number 2. Hot Rod, a 1936 Ford Model 68 Deluxe 3-Window Coupe. Ford Motor Company's greatest innovation since the Model T was the development of the flathead V8 engine. It wasn't the first V8, but the design and manufacturing process they came up with made it the first affordable and mass-produced V8. Ford engineers created a block with cylinder banks and crankcase all in a single casting rather than separate components that would bolt together. The methods of casting, machining, and assembly were simplified. The Ford V8 lent itself to hot rodding and gave birth to an abundance of aftermarket speed equipment, including, in 1947, the famous R-Dunn cylinder heads, which allowed you to convert from a flathead configuration to overhead valves. And a little side note here, the R-Dunn head was the brainchild of an engineer named Zora Arcus Duntov, who was a Belgian-born Jew of Russian descent. He joined the French Air Force during World War II, but when France threw in the towel, he fled Europe and set up his engineering firm in New York. And if you know the name Arcus Duntov, you probably also know that he's recognized as the father of the Corvette. Anyway, back to the 36 Ford. Let's talk about styling. The three-window is called that because it has a window in each door and a rear window, and there are no quarter windows in the top. That would be a five-window, which is another model that Ford produced. Now, the five-window is still very cool, but in my mind, it's less desirable, and I think most hot rodders would agree. Number 3. 
1936 was the second year that Ford employed streamlining in their cars. And the three-window has a fantastic uninterrupted teardrop shape with a bull-nosed radiator shell, pontoon fenders, a smooth and flowing top, and nicely tapered rear-end styling. I think the styling and proportions on the 36 Ford are so good, in fact, that it doesn't really need chopping or any other body modification like a lot of hot rods. All they really need is a lowered stance for that sleeker hot rod appearance, and that can be accomplished in your garage with very little hassle. Finally, let's talk about price. This is all over the map, and I'll give you an outlier, just for example. In 1949, a guy named Jack Calori built an amazing 36 three-window coupe. It made the cover of Hot Rod in November of 49. That car was restored in the early 2000s, won the early custom class at Pebble Beach in 2005, and sold in 2018 for over $400,000. By contrast, a mildly modified 36 listed on Bring a Trailer early this year was bid to $50,500 but did not meet reserve. You could probably buy a stock three-window for between $40,000 and $55,000, but then you'd spend thousands more for go-fast parts and getting the stance right. So let's say for sake of argument that I would expect to pay about $70,000 for a clean, well-built 36 Ford three-window hot rod coupe. Number three, off-road, a 1949 Land Rover. If you listen to episode 7, then you already know the early history of Land Rover. The 48 and 49 Land Rovers have some distinctive features, which some would probably call crude, but it's part of their charm. The most obvious is that the headlamps are mounted behind the front grille in the same method that was used on military Jeeps, which were the inspiration for the Land Rover. Another little quirk is that they have no exterior door handles. Instead, there's a little canvas weather flap in the door that you just reach through to get to the interior door handle. What could be simpler? They are also full-time four-wheel drive with a freewheel feature that disengages the front axle on overrun which prevents drivetrain windup on high traction surfaces. And if you're not familiar with drivetrain windup, just know that when the wheels on a four-wheel drive are not able to slip to some degree, the rotation of the wheels will eventually cause binding in the driveline. This is because the inside and outside wheels spin at different rates in a curve. Now, this isn't a problem on loose surfaces like a dirt road or in the mud, but on pavement, it will induce windup and damage components. Later Land Rovers had a part-time four-wheel drive system where you could disengage the front axle entirely. But there's just something cool about the earliest cars. The 80-inch wheelbase of early Land Rovers is perfect for off-road trails. And with their aluminum bodywork, low center of gravity, and high ground clearance, they're a lot like a mechanical mountain goat. And they're really fun to drive off-road. You don't so much sit in them as you sort of wear them. Even at 10 miles per hour, you'd be grinning from ear to ear. In today's market, I would expect to pay about $65,000 for an excellent condition 1949 Land Rover. I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Don't go away. Hi, this is Maurice Merrick. How would you like to win a custom 1966 Triumph Bonneville 650? 
Union Motorcycle Classics is known for building meticulously crafted custom vintage motorcycles. And now they're raffling this 66 Bonneville to benefit the most vulnerable among us. All proceeds will go to Reacts Ministries in Southeast Asia. This bike is a classic British twin loaded with one-of-a-kind details, and it can be yours. Reacts strives to meet the specific needs of their children's homes and children's centers to foster and promote self-sustainability. Their goal is to provide food, shelter, and education to children who are otherwise unable to afford these basic needs. The entry deadline is October 7th, 2020 at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Go to unionmotorcycle.com to enter. That's unionmotorcycle.com. See official rules on their website. You can also visit reactsministries.org to find out more about their valuable work. Because change in the world starts with you. Number four, Roadster. Well, this one was a little bit tough for me to decide. So I did a comparo of two contemporary cars. A 1956 Austin Healey 100 BN2 and a 1959 Alfa Romeo Tipo 750 Giulietta Spider. Let's start with the Austin Healey. First, it's quintessentially British. The 100 model designation was a nod to the fact that it could reach 100 miles per hour which was still quite a benchmark in the 1950s. It's got a low-slung, sexy body with an athletic front grille and curvy hips. The windscreen folds nearly flat for wind-in-your-hair driving. The Healey 100 BN2 had a 2.6-liter overhead valve four-cylinder engine making about 90 horsepower and a four-speed gearbox with overdrive. The Alfa Romeo Tipo 750 Giulietta Spider is thoroughly Italian with its compact unibody and Pininfarina styling an 80-horsepower, 1,300cc twin overhead cam engine and four-speed gearbox were standard equipment. Compared to the Healey, the Alpha is a bit plump-looking, and it doesn't help that these Alphas had quite a bit of ground clearance. In terms of appearance, for me, the Healey 100 is the more attractive car. But let's look at brakes and suspension. Both cars have independent front suspension with coil springs and hydraulic shocks. Both cars have four-wheel drum brakes. Now, the Healey has a solid rear axle on leaf springs, while the Alpha has a solid axle on coils. Now, let's look at weight. The Healey weighs 2,295 pounds, while the Alpha weighs a bit over 1,800 pounds. And now, the engine design. The Alpha has an aluminum block and head, while the Healey has a cast iron block and head, and the engine came straight from the Austin parts bin. In fact, it was put in taxi cabs for a while. They bored it out to 2.6 liters for the Healey, which gave it a little bit better performance. But it's also an undersquare engine, meaning that the stroke of the piston is longer than the diameter of the cylinder bore. That makes it a torquey but low revving design. Many British cars of the 1950s had undersquare engines because the government's tax calculations were based on cylinder bore and number of cylinders. So smaller bore engines with fewer cylinders meant you didn't pay as much in taxes. But Italy used a different tax calculation. So Alpha was able to build a high revving square engine with a stroke of 75 millimeters and a bore of 74 millimeters, basically a one-to-one -one ratio. So the verdict is that although the Healey 100 is a more attractive car, at least to my eye, when it comes down to driving enjoyment, I'd have to go with the twin cam Alfa Romeo Giulietta Spider. Current valuation for a good solid driver is about $65,000.
Number 5. Sports Car A 1967 Porsche 911 S Here's a few specs for you. 2 liter, 180 horsepower, air-cooled flat 6, vented 4-wheel disc brakes, and a stiffer-tuned suspension than the standard 911. Top speed for the 911S was 140 miles per hour. Objectively, the Porsche 911 might be the finest all-around sports car in history. They did it through a serious commitment to motorsports, brilliant engineering, and a singular focus on performance models. The seating position in a 911S is perfect in terms of visibility and distance from the controls. There's no reaching or leaning forward because your hands fall exactly where they need to be for steering and shifting. It doesn't feel cramped even though it's a fairly small cockpit. The sport seats are the most comfortable you might ever sit in. And the sound of that flat six out there behind you under hard throttle is absolute magic. In 1967, the 911 S cost $7,255 or adjusted for inflation, $56,450. That sounds like a bargain, but it will set you back a little bit more today because values have soared over the last decade. In 2010, an excellent condition Porsche 911S was valued at about $40,000. Today, that same car will cost you $240,000. Number 6. Muscle Car A 1962 Chevrolet Bel Air 409 Bubble Top Sport Coupe So this one takes us back to the horsepower wars of the early 1960s. General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler were trying to whip each other on the track and the drag strip and convert that to sales on the street. Chevy had already been very successful with their small block 265 cubic inch and 283 cubic inch V8s, which were shepherded by a guy named Ed Cole, the chief engineer of Chevrolet, and another guy I mentioned earlier, Zora Arcus Duntoff, the father of the Corvette. The Vette was a disappointment when it came out in 1953, primarily because its Blue Flame 6 was not a performance engine, and this was supposed to be a sports car. But in 1957, the 283 was massaged until it was the first GM engine to produce the magical one horsepower per cubic inch of displacement. Now, back to the 62 Bel Air Bubble Top Sport Coupe. As they say, there's no replacement for displacement. And in the late 50s, Chevy began offering a 348 cubic inch big block V8, mainly for its medium duty trucks, but the big block also found its way into passenger cars. By 1961, it had been bored and stroked to 409 cubic inches, and the 409 also produced that magical one horsepower per cubic inch, with its dual quad Carter carburetors and aluminum intake manifold. And behind that was a four-speed manual T10 gearbox. This was the Chevy the Beach Boys sang about, my four-speed dual quad posi traction 409. In terms of styling, by 1962, General Motors had progressed to a much cleaner, leaner appearance, the so-called rectilinear look, thanks to the direction of Bill Mitchell, who had succeeded the legendary Harley Earl as GM's vice president of styling. And Bill Mitchell is the guy who's responsible for these early 60s bubble tops. The bright work was minimized and the body sides were pulled in for a more sheer look. The bubble top coupe has a compound curved windshield, a gently arcing roof line, no B-pillars, and skinny C-pillars, finishing with a massive rear glass 
that flows into about a quarter acre of rear deck lid. I think it's the best looking Chevy of the 60s. Only 1206 Bel Air Bubble Top 409s were built in 1962. I'll take mine in laurel green metallic with steel wheels and dog dish hubcaps. And I would expect to pay about $140,000. So there you go, six dream cars for a grand total of $805,000. I think I did pretty well for the money. The Packard and the 911S account for more than half the total, but I would argue they are also the most unique machines on my list. I'm curious to see if you like these cars as much as I do, and also what's on your dream car list. Follow me at Horsepower Heritage on Instagram and let me know in the comments. This was a fun episode. I enjoyed putting it together, and maybe I'll do it again down the road, but with cars from 1970 onward. Let me know what you think. That's it for this episode. Horsepower Heritage will be back on Wednesday, October 14th. In the meantime, tell your friends about this show. Like, share, subscribe, all that jazz, and they can binge listen the last nine episodes. So until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.